As I was making slides this morning, I knew I was missing a slide, but I couldn't figure out which one it was, and I realized it's the kid question of the week. Uh, I forgot to make a slide for that. So parents, if you guys could help your kids write down the following question, that would be really, really helpful. What are the two things that the Lord commanded Adam and Eve to do? You write down an abbreviated version of that, but what are the two things that the Lord commanded Adam and Eve to do? Now, it's the start of Advent, which is a celebration of Jesus' arrival, his incarnation, and it's a looking forward to his return. And yet, I told you guys to flip to Genesis. Why would we be in Genesis? I thought this was a period that we're supposed to be in the New Testament. Well, you are correct. It's, it's Advent season, right? We see the incarnation of Christ in the New Testament. But I think that the best way that we can celebrate and understand Advent is, or, or one of the ways, is we can see it through the covenants of the Old Testament. Now, a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to one another. Now, it's different than a contract. Right? In Western culture, our understanding of covenant is also often through the lens of a contract. It's two different things. Right? A contract is, is for business, and if it's broken, there's some stipulations for sure, but a covenant is personal. And really, the only way out of a covenant is the death of one party. Uh, we, we see the, our modern-day version of covenant that we see most most prevalent in our society that we see from the Bible is marriage. Marriage is a covenant. Now, as you read through the story of the Bible, if you were to flip through Genesis and keep going all the way to Revelation, you would see that there are covenants that shape the backbone of the Bible. You can actually see the unfolding plan of God through covenants in the Old Testament. And so particularly over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the covenants between God and Noah, God and Abraham, God and Moses, and God and David. And with each, with each of them, we'll look at some bigger picture expectations that I think are inside each and every one of us. We all want fulfillment in various ways, and we seek it in various places. I believe that the covenants speak into those desired expectations and desires. Each points us to a different area of desire or fulfillment which God has placed in our lives. Not only do they help us to see our desires, but they also show us where we actually fail in achieving fulfillment with those desires. But not only that, each points us directly to where Christ is the fulfillment of those expectations and desires. And so we'll look at each covenant. We'll kind of observe the grand expectation that it addresses see where we fail in going after that, and then we'll see how Jesus fulfills that expectation and what that means for us. Now, just a little bit of context for today. We're going to be in Genesis uh, 8, 15 through 9, 17. Before we jump in, I kind of just want to give a little context, a super quick review of human history up until this point. Now, we read in Genesis 1 through 2 that God created everything. Yahweh created everything, and he called it good. The chief pinnacle of his creation is humanity. As we read that he created Adam and Eve in his image. No other part of creation gets that title. We are created in his image. 
Then in Genesis 3, we read that Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobeying his command and seeking fulfillment in something other than him. They were removed from God's presence and death enters into the world. There's a promise that God will one day redeem his people and defeat Satan. The promise is there, but there is no timeline that's given. And then in Genesis 4, we get the first recorded human death when Cain kills his brother Abel. And that just causes a spiral of human depravity. As humanity sinks further and further into sin, until we read this in Genesis 6. It says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind, whom I created, off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. So in other words, sinfulness, six chapters into the book, or to the entire Bible, is the defining mark of all humanity. Steep drop-off from Genesis 1 and 2. It's deeply embedded with humanity so that we see that the human mind is nothing but evil all the time. And so God says, I'm going to wipe out mankind, and he does. He does. Except for Noah and his family, because Noah found favor with God. We get this picture of a torrential downpour and the oceans breaking open and water going out. God wipes out everything but the people and animals inside of the ark. It's not a kid's story. It's honestly a terrible scene. But it's one that was brought about by humanity's own actions and thoughts. And Noah and his family and the animals remained on the ark for months. And then as the waters receded, Noah and his family found dry land. And they are now the only living humans on the planet. And have the only living animals on the planet. And that is where our passage takes place today. So I'm going to read Genesis 8, 15 through 9, 17. And then we'll see what that has to do with us today. Starting in eight, chapter 8, verse 15 of Genesis. Then God spoke to Noah. Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you. Birds. Livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, came out. And all the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal, and every kind of clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. Similar language to what we read in Genesis 6. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures... Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, 
Summer and winter and day and night will not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any man, animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. But you, that is Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I will establish my covenant with you, that never again will every creature be wiped out by flood waters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I've placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I form clouds of the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. The bow will be in the clouds, and I will look at it and remember the permanent covenant between God and all the living creatures on earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and every creature on earth. Lord, we are thankful that as we read your word, as we read this telling of something that happened thousands of years ago, Lord, it's still relevant for us today. Lord, the Old Testament, though it may be hard to understand, has real meaning and real purpose and real value for our lives. And so, Lord, as we read of this covenant between you and Noah and all of humanity, Lord, I pray that we would be able to see your grace in it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to see our failings in it and how you still continue to come through for us. Lord, transform us by your word. Spirit, work within our hearts to change us so that we can reflect your glory within ourselves to each other and out into the rest of the world. Lord, we love you. We praise you and we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, today's passage is an important one in the grand scheme of human history. I mean, each, each passage in the Bible is important. I want to make sure that's clear. But here's why today's passage is so important. Remember, God created mankind. They all became entirely sinful, and so God chose to wipe them all out, but Noah and his family. You could say that, in a sense, this is a restart. This is a fresh start for humanity. God is choosing a fresh start with Noah. 
Now, he, he could have chosen to go on in a different, or he could, at this point, choose to go in a different direction. Right? He could say, uh, uh, you know, do something else. He could start over. But notice what he says in the first verse of chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then he goes on to say that humanity has authority over every living creature, whether it flies, crawls, or swims. Now, if, if you go back to Genesis 1, when God created Adam, he gave him this command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the ground. Do you guys hear what I hear? It's almost exactly the same command, word for word. God is, call, is starting afresh with Noah, and what does he do? He goes back to square one. He goes back to the same command that he gave Adam and Eve. It's back to the basics. And what does this mean for us? Why, why, why does that matter? Well, it's important because it tells me that humanity was created by God for a clear purpose. There is a purpose to our life, to our existence. We weren't created by accident, and we weren't created for nothing. Instead, God has clearly created us to live life for a reason. And so then the question is, okay, if we have a purpose and we we're created for a reason, what's that reason? Well, if you take a look at the verse, it's a two-faced coin. First, the call is to multiply. That's one of the things that he told Noah to do. It's one of the things that he told Adam and Eve to do. He told them to multiply and fill the earth. Essentially do what, as we look back, humanity has done. Continue to create more worshipers of God who then spread out all over the earth. And then the call is to subdue. So multiply and subdue. Essentially by subdue, he means reign over it. That's why Genesis 2 says that we have dominion over every living thing. There's a ruling that's there. In summary, we were created to live as vice regents for God, enjoying his rule and reign, and then continuing to establish that rule and reign on this earth, on his earth. In a sense, we're like princesses and princesses, right, who joyfully submit to the king. He's the ruler, but he might send us out to establish his rule in other places. Now, this illustration falls short, but it's, it's kind of like babysitters in a sense. All right, when mom and dad want to go out, they, they get a babysitter to act on their behalf for the evening. The babysitter is in charge of feeding the kids, right, enforcing household rules, putting the kids to bed, and whatever the parents ask. They act on behalf of the parents for the night, but just to be clear, they aren't the parents. They only have as much authority as the parents have given them. Nothing more, nothing less. And so that's supposed to be us. Our purpose was to civilize and subdue the earth for the glory of God, meaning that everything in civilization took on, the ro took on that role. Right, building cities, making and enforcing laws, our jobs, our families, our friends. Each aspect of life was supposed to take on the role of establishing God's reign throughout the earth. 
And even after the fall, even after sin has entered the world, God again calls us to do what he originally called us to do, which is to establish his reign over the earth. But I want you to notice something interesting. This whole series is about covenants. It's about covenants between God and humanity. But the covenant itself here with Noah is not the command. There's a command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue, but that's not the covenant. The covenant is actually found in chapter 9, verse 11, which reads, I, that is God, establish my covenant with you, that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. The covenant's actually one-sided. It's a promise that God will never wipe out humanity again. Now, why would God promise that? I thought everything was going to be set back to normal, right? He's still giving us the same command that he gave Adam and Eve. And it's because sin is still present. And it still has a hold on humanity. God actually said at the, back of chapter, at the end of chapter 8 that the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. You see, the purpose of humanity remains. We're still supposed to be God's vice regents. And yet God knew that sin would still sway us. He knew that we wouldn't fulfill the purpose to which we were called. And so we still see that sin today affects our purpose. Look around the world and you can see that the overall goal of humanity is not to establish God's rule and reign over the earth. And don't just look outside, but look inside. And you can see that it's a fight within ourselves to live out this purpose, even as the people of God. And so, quickly, we're going to look at three ways that sin affects our purpose, that it messes with it. And then we're going to see how Jesus redeems each and every one of those ways. And so first, first, Sin removes our purpose. It just removes it. Now, this can take a couple of different forms. Right? It can look like being slothful. Right? This is like the rich man in Luke 15 who says to himself, take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. Now, this person doesn't have any drive in life, but beyond that, purpose has just been removed from their life. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this from the pulpit, but it reminds me of Seth Rogen. Right? They, don't, they just want to enjoy life, and there's no bigger purpose involved. And this could be you if you're concerned with comfort. Right? Maybe you're not Seth Rogen, but you're fully concerned with comfort. And you find yourself more concerned with kicking back than doing anything else in life. Now, it also, by removing it, could take the form of depression. This can range from feeling like you can't move forward in anything to feeling like you don't even belong on this earth. People who struggle with depression often find no reason to go on. They can't find the purpose for their life. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you're suicidal, but this may be you if you feel like no matter how hard you try, life just feels meaningless. Or like you just can't find purpose anywhere. There seems to be no, no drive to, to do anything. And so first we see that sin just removes 
purpose from our life. Second, sin alters purpose. It alters our purpose. It puts our efforts towards the wrong purposes in life. This is the one that I would guess many of us struggle with. Calvin said that the heart is an idle factory, meaning that we're constantly producing things within our hearts that we would like to worship other than God. So by altering purpose, sin puts our efforts towards things that aren't God and disconnects our lives from serving God by establishing his reign on the earth. Now, I think this can take many different forms, which we don't have time to go over this morning. But I think that each of these forms boils down to three categories. Three categories. So how does sin alter our purpose? Well, one way is through control. All right, we seek to establish control in our lives. Now, this comes out in how you deal with finances, how you lead your family, how you treat those around you, how you approach your job. Life becomes about establishing control over your surroundings, which may include the people around you. This may be you if you have to know what's going on at all times, or if you're constantly thinking about how to be safe or how to be secure. It also may be you if you find yourself constantly worrying about the unknowns in life. And so the first way that sin alters our purpose is it puts it towards control. And again, that can come out in many, many different ways. Second, it comes out in approval. Our purpose in life becomes to gain the approval of others. No longer am I just able to live my life as I see fit. Instead, my life is about gaining the approval of others at all times, meaning that I can't do anything that I see fit or as the Lord sees fit, but only as others see fit for me. You don't care about control or power, just as long as you get along with everybody and everyone likes you. And this may be you if you find yourself constantly thinking about what others think of you, and you can't make a decision that, that may upset some people. Now, take that on the flip side, and the final one is power. It's about establishing as much power in our lives as possible. We want influence other, over others, and we want to be seen. We only want to go up in the world, and different from approval, we don't really care what others think about us. And we're okay with hurting some people as long as we're on top and we're up front, leading the way. Now, I think about Aladdin. Right, who didn't care how he made it to the top. He just wanted to make it to the top. And this may be you if you don't really care about who you hurt. As long as you're in charge and it's your voice that is being heard. It may also be you if you feel like you have to have the last word in every conversation. And so, first sin removes our purpose. Second sin alters our purpose by putting it towards control, approval, or power, and those things popping up in various different forms in life. And finally, it elevates our purpose. Finally, we can make purpose itself into our God. And so instead of putting ourselves necessarily towards the wrong purpose, we just make purpose itself what we go after. We find the thing that we feel gives us motivation in life, that excites us, that gives us drive, and we just give everything that we have to that. We may work way more than we should, 
or only concern ourselves with one aspect in life because we found our life's purpose. Purpose itself becomes the God that we worship and we whittle our lives away at its feet as we give it every last second of our lives. That might especially be true in Northern Virginia. And so we see that sin removes purpose, it alters purpose, and it elevates purpose to an unhealthy way. And so my encouragement is as you're thinking about those to think through which one you most identify with, but not just to sit with that, because then you could just sit in a pile of guilt all day long. What are we to do? If If we've been created with purpose, but sin has completely changed what that looks like in our lives, what are we... What are we to do? It shouldn't be to just sit in guilt. Instead, we see that actually Jesus redeems each aspect of purpose. He comes in and he redeems each aspect of our purpose. Number one, instead of removing purpose, he gives it back to us. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. He's giving all Christians a clear, distinct purpose to their lives. Your purpose in life is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. That then connects to each aspect of my life. Now parenting, church, work, my marriage, friendships, all of it is done in the context of making disciples, whether through sharing the gospel, helping others to honor God in their lives, or to just continue to display the love of Jesus to those around me. Now, it's funny, too, because if you recall, the original purpose of humanity was to multiply and subdue. Multiply and fill the earth, and then subdue the earth, or or establish God's reign in it. And if you notice here, Jesus is actually just giving us that purpose again, just reoriented around the gospel, right? We, We multiply by leading others to Christ, and other people becoming more Christians, and in doing so, we are subduing the world to God, or establishing his reign over the earth. And so, Jesus' final command is the first command that we get from the Lord in the Bible. So Jesus gives us our purpose. He gives it back to us. Not only that, but he he gives us the proper motive. He gives us the proper motive. Because of sin, we each are naturally selfish. So we just talked about with altering uh, our, our, our purpose. We seek the idols of comfort, of control, of power, and approval. Each of those are concerned about me, myself, and I, and how I can make my life better. And so when your goal is to establish control or gain approval, comfort, or power, then anything that messes with that goal leaves you lashing out, upset, flailing about, angry, because your motive is inherently selfish. It's about me. And so if left to our own devices, we wouldn't want to follow Jesus' command. It's inherently unselfish because it's others-oriented. But graciously, Jesus has supplied the proper motive for us. No longer are we 
living to get something for ourselves that we don't already have. Instead, in Christ, we are now the owners of the riches of God himself, the creator of the world. We've gained control in God. And that we know that he's in control. And that one day the world will be restored to perfection. We may not have control now, but we are with the one who is in control. We've gained power with God. And that the Holy Spirit is working in us to do things greater than we could accomplish ourselves. We've gained comfort with God. And knowing that we will one day dwell with him in a place of no pain, death, or grief. And that he gives us peace today. We've gained approval with the only one with who we should be trying to gain approval. And that is God. In Christ, he has approved of us and calls us his sons and his daughters. It is out of this that we now have the proper motivation for our purpose. Because we are fulfilled in Christ, we now have the freedom to pursue helping others to experience this satisfaction. And not only that, but Christ has empowered us by the Spirit to have new hearts that are motivated to honor God by loving him and helping others to love him. And so, Jesus gives us purpose, he gives us the proper motivation for it, the proper motive, and then he sets it in the right place. We don't disciple to make ourselves feel fulfilled or proud. We don't baptize like we will later today to make ourselves look better. We don't teach to show off our knowledge or to assert ourselves. Instead, Christ puts our purpose in the right place. Our purpose in life is to establish the reign and rule of who? Not us, of God. Which means that our purpose in life is to honor and enjoy God. It's not the purpose itself that drives our life. It's experiencing the overflowing love of God that gives us purpose in the first place. We recognize that we can only participate in the purposes of God solely because of what he has done for us. And that it is nothing that we have achieved for ourselves. And because of that, purpose isn't the final goal. It's merely a means of worshiping and enjoying the God who has given it to us. And so what are we to do with this today? What are we to do with this today? Well, first, my call is to give yourself to the purpose of God, Christian and non-Christian alike. We were created to live in God's world, God's way. And because of this, as we give ourselves to our God-ordained purpose, we will find more satisfaction there than if we tried to find it anywhere else. And so give yourself to the purposes of God, to establishing his reign and rule throughout the earth. And then second, I would encourage you guys to figure out how to, to think through how you can connect each aspect of your life to the purpose of God. Remember, our purpose is to establish the reign of God throughout the earth. That can take many different forms. And that means that each part of our lives is a window in which we can establish the reign of God. And so how can you help your kids to love God? How can you help your spouse to love God? How can you help model the love of God to your coworkers? How can you help your community to hear about Christ's love for them? Each aspect of our temporal lives is given an eternal purpose. And so I encourage you today, you were created for a purpose, and it is in Jesus that we achieve that.
purpose. Life was given to you for the purpose of enjoying God's reign and then continuing to establish it throughout his world. So let's pray that he helps us to live with his purpose in our lives today. Lord, we are thankful that you haven't left us to just flail about and figure life out on our own. Lord, instead you've given us a clear command. Multiply and subdue. And to just establish and enjoy your reign. It's funny, uh, I know personally that my purpose in life is to make disciples and to enjoy you. And yet I still find myself seeking purpose in other things all the time. But I think each of us in here would say the same thing. And so, Lord, we ask, Spirit, would you work within us to help us to continue to seek purpose in you? Because the thing is, is that when we do, it's there that we find satisfaction. It's there that we find true purpose in life, that we're truly fulfilled. So, Lord, help us. Give us clarity and wisdom as we think about connecting each aspect of our lives to your purposes or to your reign. Lord, and work within us to help us supernaturally to do so, to establish your reign and rule over this earth. Lord, we're thankful that you're a kind king, that you're a good king. Lord, you're not a tyrant, that you bring us in in love and grace and mercy that we have never been able to get anywhere else. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen.